Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. And now, enjoy our latest episode. But I thought it was important, nevertheless, to kind of chart where sports writers started and how we can use, you know, what they did then, how they covered it then to inform how it's covered today. Sports journalism has evolved over the last century from just publishing game results and lionizing popular athletes to examining complex stories. In many ways, sports journalism has come a long way, but there's still opportunities for it to do better. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Ron Bishop is a professor of communication at Drexel University in Philadelphia. He's here to talk about a new book he has written, The Thematic Evolution of Sports Journalism's Narrative of Mental Illness, A Little Less Conversation. Ron, welcome to It's All Journalism. Happy to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks to you for reaching out. I don't know if it was you or somebody who's helping you promote your book. Someone did. But it's a fascinating subject that you've written about. But before we get to that, let's find out a little, little bit about you. You know, I understand that you were a sports journalist at some point and went into PR. Tell me about your, your journalist journey. You know, what got you interested in journalism and, and where does sort of sports figure into that? Well, it's an interesting and multifaceted journey, I guess. I like so many, I guess, other People of that era, I was inspired by, you know, the, the standard mythical creatures of Woodward and Bernstein and Lou Grant and all of those wonderful fictional portrayals of, and non-fictional portrayals of journalists and journalism. So that led me to the school paper and that led me to become the sports editor. And then that's in uh, northern New Jersey where I grew up. And then after that, majored in radio, TV, film at Temple University in Philly, and then bounced between doing stringing for my local paper after college because the job market was pretty terrible in the mid-80s, and then got a job as a, a writer for a trade publication, writing on areas of the law I had to learn very quickly, like racketeering and whistleblowers and that kind of stuff, and then got the bug again, went back to journalism, and then had a bit of a falling out with my GM, which led to the PR, a little bit more money, and then back to reporting and then on to Drexel, which is it's a very circuitous kind of road. But I was lucky enough to run into an old buddy at a conference where I was presenting a paper when I was doing my PhD. And he said, come teach. We need adjuncts. I said, fine. And that was 1995. And I haven't left since then. So well, good for you. Tell me about the program that you've set up. It's sort of a research communications research program. Well, it's kind of a journalism is a for Drexel. It, it is housed in the communication department. It's one, I guess, concentration of three. Uh, most of our students are PR. Speaking of going back to the, <laughs> they, the, they want to have jobs when they, they've learned. Exactly. They want to get jobs when they get out. Although we do have a hardy bunch of really solid journalism students, it is growing slowly. But we have seen progress. There have been one uh, Maria Paula Torres Mahares who just finished a really excellent stint at Bloomberg, and she's looking for jobs as we speak, and some other talented writers on our student newspaper, which I advised for a while and now help out sort of on an ad hoc basis. But as far as the research, that's kind of my little cottage industry. I mean, I have been interested, I guess, never wanting to completely leave the field in exploring a variety of areas. I wrote a book on, for example, several years ago, the how local newspapers covered the coming of the Japanese American internment camps back in the 40s. I've written on, I just finished a paper that'll be published soon on how 
journalists continue to use the language of addiction to describe their relationship with the former president. And it just kind of runs the gamut, I guess. I never, uh, never, as I said, completely left. I've written on Walter Cronkite and Spotlight. I guess there's a focus on how journalism is treated in popular culture. So that's probably the, the short answer. So, I mean, research has been a part of journalism for a long time, a facet of it. Do you see yourself sort of identifying interesting stories in, in that space and then sort of going deep in them to put them into some sort of context? One of my focuses is looking at how journalists, I mean, aside from the taking a look every so often at how the field sort of portrays itself or wants to be seen in popular culture, I've written a variety of papers on how marginalized populations are covered in the media and how, for example, I have one coming out on Kim Eng, who is the first woman to be hired as the general manager of a major league baseball team by the Marlins. Um, unfortunately, Derek Jeter was then <laughs> summarily dismissed after he made that brave hire. But it, I'm almost doing what I hope are helpful reality checks on on how journalists cover different things. It's never meant, you know, as a former reporter, it's never meant to be vindictive, more helpful, I guess, <laughs> offering some commentary on how things are done. We recently, we we're in the middle of a project with a couple of my colleagues on how sports writers, which is my official first home as a reporter, which led to this book, obviously, but how sports writers have been framing and asking us to make meaning out of the decision by Manfred or Major League Baseball to include Negro League statistics in the official canon slash database of baseball. And baseball is probably the most statistics happy or obsessed sport of the big four. So it's a real opportunity to take a look at, you know, at first we thought, well, you know, it's going to be a complete erasure of the history and folks are going to focus on the statistics only. And I'm a bit of a stats geek myself. But in reality, it just was a almost like a tension that's almost being built by reporting that might cause us as fans to eventually forget or, you know, have recede in our memories all the history of, of the Negro Leagues and focus on, you know, comparisons and statistics and war and all of the new fangled gadgets and gizmos now that we use to supposedly <laughs> uh, enjoy uh, enjoy the sport. But again, it all circles back to, you know, representation of, of certain issues, of certain decisions, of you know, marginalized populations and on down the line. Yeah, I wasn't aware of this idea of integrating the statistics. On the one hand, it's like, oh, the statistics people, you know, it's a new set of numbers. But that whole segment of the, the history of uh, Major League Baseball, it's almost taking it out of context and then putting it, just sort of bringing it in with good intentions, I imagine, but failing to see that its existence as it is provides a very valuable lesson about Major League Baseball's history. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think that, um, you know, for me as a as a fan, but also as a you know, someone in this profession and line of work, I worry when certain ways of thinking about a sport, in this case, are highlighted and encouraged in other aspects of the sport are sort of pushed to the margins or devalued. We have already started to see it. And that's what Alex and, and Nick, my colleagues and I sort of found is we're doing the analysis. It was for a while, it was sort of equal parts. Well, the history is fascinating, but you know, by the end of the period that we're, we were studying in terms of the coverage, it was almost like, okay, that's over. Let's, you know, the statistics are here. You can now compare Josh Gibson to Babe Ruth legitimately and have those arguments. And 
you know, it's a, it's an interesting characterization of sports fans that are built into it because, you know, it's assumed then that everybody's just sitting there pouring over baseball reference all day and making these comparisons when there are varieties of experience with the sport, not all of which involve, you know, war and runs created and all those different new 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 statistics. The thematic evolution of sports journalism's narrative on mental illness, what led you to choosing this is something you wanted to research and, and write about? Well, I think primarily it was just the increasing number at the time. The research journey kind of began in 2018. My son at the time was having some pretty major hip surgery. So while he was recovering at the hospital here in Delaware, I had a lot of time to just kind of be with him and sit and think and watch a lot of TV. And as I was watching a lot of TV, this was when I think it was Michael Phelps. It might have been Michael Phelps, but a pretty big name athlete, or at least one or two, actually, because he was in the hospital for a while had chosen to publicly share their experience with mental illness. And I mean, for me, I'm a, I have a, a, a list and a book of things that I'd love to write if I had the time. So it's, it doesn't take a lot. And sometimes that's to my detriment because sometimes there's no there there with an issue or a topic. But it started out maybe as more of a comparison, which I may still want to do someday between Michael Phelps and Serena Williams or looking across male and female and how they're, the differences in coverage unfold black versus white there are some differences there as well but i still have the paper here somewhere that has the list of original athletes and i kept adding to them and then i thought okay you know how has this gone down throughout history you know where are we are sports journalists better more nuanced more complete in their coverage of mental illness than they were you know let's say when the field sort of coalesced back you know in the 1880s and 1890s as you said that sports journalism sort of began in, in the early 20th century, maybe even before that. You know, how were sports figures viewed at that time? And what was the perspective that sports journalists were giving of these, these people? There are a few historical touch points that I think are, you know, can start us off pretty easily. I mean, I think at first when yellow journalism sort of, I guess, swept the nation or swept the industry in the, in the latter half of the 19th century, Sports were kind of an afterthought. And when sports were covered, the writers who covered them weren't trained, as we would think today, in how to cover sports. And the it was very sketchy, I guess is the right word, or incomplete, just bare bones sort of coverage of sports that the publishers at the time were appropriate for the public. Oddly enough, this included boxing and horse racing, which quite, I guess, a, an ironic twist in a way. But as time went on and as, you know, the likes of Bennett and Pulitzer and Greeley, et cetera, decided that, you know, they were really going to go all in on this new sensationalistic grab them by the collar sort of coverage approach. Sports became a bigger deal. And so they put more resources into it and part that coalesced as a field, sort of as a sub area, an official, you know, professional part of, of the bigger profession. And so what that meant practically was that a lot of Folks like Tim Murnane, who is the first big name in sports journalism, at least that appears in, in the book, came from sports themselves. And so there was a real fluidity in the boundaries between sports and promoting sports and journalism and how you know journalism was, was evolving at the time. And so this would, I guess, sort of emerge full throttle when Grantland Rice came along in the 20s when the field had established or that part of the field had established itself. And he was, you know, the king of the gee whiz coverage, you know, lionizing athletes and just writing nothing but positive, wonderful, glorious things about sports. 
But, you know, when the story begins, when the first athlete in the book, this is Martin Bergen of the Boston Bean Eaters, it's a marriage of that overhyped, breathless, sensationalist, sensationalistic, I should say, coverage style that was being used in other areas, crime in particular, and, you know, lots of what complete deception and fabricated stories just that rush to grab readers. Bob Ryan, actually, of the Boston Globe, when I started this research and was asking around for some perspective, he said, you know, he did raise, I thought, a pretty good question. You know, is it too much to expect of a bunch of folks who had just come together as a field and been sort of legitimized within the industry to be nuanced at something that the general public really didn't even know much about or what they did know about was often cast in those same sensationalistic, gruesome kind of terms. And, you know, we had a good conversation about that, but I thought it was important nevertheless to kind of chart where sports writers started and how we can use, you know, what they did then, how they covered it then to inform how it's covered today. So most of the people who are going to probably be listening to this are only going to be maybe familiar with athletes for the last 10 or, or 20 years. But, you know, who are some of the, the figures that appear in your book? I know you mentioned one that you sort of examine and the way the mental health issues that they were dealing with were portrayed. Well, the story begins with Martin Bergen, as I mentioned. He was a catcher for the Boston Bean Eaters, which were an original team name for the, for the Red Sox earlier in their history. And he was a very moody, sort of volatile person who had exhibited very clear signs of what today would easily be diagnosed as mental illness. And so his play sort of suffered from this. He was absent from the team a lot. His teammates were not thrilled with his absences, but the sports writers like Murnane at the time sort of glossed over it all by you know, lionizing him for his obvious physical ability. And so this was sort of almost like a yo-yo, a back and forth as Bergen's condition worsened. And January of 1900, he killed his wife and his son and then ended his own life. And the coverage of that, and this was, of course, before the days of photography, but the artist's renderings were exceptionally graphic and gruesome. And the headlines, you know, screamed all kinds of misnomers and misinformation about mental illness and just dark, terrifying portrayals of what happened, most of which were probably not true, but which, you know, of course, were, again, sort of owing to the, the style of the time and covering events. And it sounds kind of terrible, but he is the planting of the flag. He's the first one. In that period, much of the coverage, and we're talking about as we move from the 1890s into the early part of the 20th century, the coverage focused mainly on sort of a, an ongoing list of players who chose to end their own lives. Ed Delahanty, Phillies, Terry Larkin, a pitcher in New York. And these were always accompanied by very graphic and gruesome depictions of how they chose to end their lives. But it also brought with it sort of a, an unsolved mystery frame where nobody had any idea just out of the blue. He, yeah, exactly. You know. Like we had no, this was, in Bergen's case, it went from, you know, he was just, if you pardon the expression, a pain in the neck to then afterward, just grieving teammates, not being able to explain, you know, what happened. And this kind of framing sort of carries through that first 30 or 40 years of the 20th century, where you have figures like Chick Stahl, who played with Bergen on the Bean Eaters, Johnny Mostel and Willard Hergesheimer and others, 
And it was always, you know, the sad and crestfallen teammates left to figure out what actually happened. That was a hugely important theme, I should say, in that early coverage. And the book basically examines three stages where the first we've been talking about was this focus on insanity or the outer signs and the the graphic depictions of the behavior of people like Bergen and the rest. And then we move into sort of this middle liminal period, I guess, starting in with Jimmy Pearsall, who is probably the most famous athlete, has the, the longest record, I guess, of talking about his mental illness throughout the course of his life. There was a very famous book and, and movie with Anthony Perkins. You think the movie uh, Fear Strikes Out? Fear Strikes um, Out, yep. Yeah, it was a best-selling book. And for the first time, you know, an athlete's experience with mental illness was definitely whitewashed and made for public consumption. And that's actually a real key theme throughout the book is that, you know, the sports journalists throughout, even today with athletes like Simone Biles, Michael Phelps, Naomi Osaka, uh, and the list grows pretty much by the day. The goal still is to make the reader comfortable with the experience that you're writing about and not go too far. Or the biggest problem in most more recent coverage is a lack of real discussion of the need for systemic change, you know, to help people who experience mental illness. The demonization that has been seen in all other forms of media content, uh, the idea that, you know, mentally ill people commit violence at a much higher rate than they actually do. I mean, they're, they're usually not violent at all, that kind of thing, is still there. It's getting better. And this is not new to journalism. I mean, it's, you know, it's part of their existence is that, you know, you, you don't want to alienate the reader and push them away. So you make the experience as comfortable for them as, as you can. And so the second stage I mentioned a minute ago, not to go on too long, but it changed slightly in that the focus of sports journalists became how inconvenient the mental illness was for the teams and the leagues and the coaches <laughs> like uh, Terry Sawchuk. His on, bad attitude is causing you know, them to exactly, yeah. not be, not perform well on the, on the field. There are lots of historical, you know, subtext of the thing to the journey. I mean, it, the one example is Terry Sawchuk, who's acknowledged as one of maybe the 10 greatest goalies ever to play in the NHL. And his, mental anguish his mental illness was dismissed as what sports writers coined as rubberitis because they were still lost still very much lost in the shut up and play sort of play with pain that mike messner and others have written very eloquently about but you know the greatest goal it could be replaced in the blink of an eye which he was they traded him to from toronto to detroit and it was lots of focus on what it was doing to the team so instead of the more graphic screaming headlines we talked about a minute ago it was like it was more a commentary on what how it was changing the teammates lives and making it hard for them especially the coaches and the teams and sports writers for reasons of access i'm sure to a degree and also just to, again their goal is to always to sustain interest in the teams it wasn't necessarily that they took the coaches side but they just gave them a lot of room you know and this was this was pre-radio and TV at this point. Well, almost radio, but not quite TV. But they would, you know, let the coaches just rant and rave about what a pain this was and how, you know, we had to find other players to replace them. And the list, you know, kind of goes on and on. And there wasn't even any, like, oh, well, you know, once he gets his head screwed on right, he'd be able to come back and play. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't know if we've ever still reached the point, you know, in sports journalism and all forms of journalism where we 
or in society that we treat mental illness as a as another form of illness as something that you know we need to help people get through but it was very much a pushing them to the sidelines and just waiting until they came back or if the problem persisted as in the case of Mike Walton who was a hockey player also for the Leafs he was traded of course after the Leafs got tired of dealing with the fallout from from him not being able to play it all was back to you know the team is being damaged by this and sometimes as i said with Sawchuk and Walton they just had enough and they traded them in other cases you know they would welcome them back begrudgingly and continue to you know write about the sports writers that is would continue to write about the illness sort of in the in the rearview mirror i guess is the right right analogy so the last period the third period where does that start i assume we're still in it yeah, we are, I think. I mean, just if my, you know, humble estimates are right, I think the turning point came in between the 60s and 70s, I think. There was a a last sort of, I guess, salvo with Alex Johnson, who was the batting champion, has, I think, still has the, the closest margin of victory, the AL batting title in 1970. But he introduced Marvin Miller into the process because when he had a just a long series of run-ins with the Angels and management and teammates. When Marvin Miller came to represent him in a grievance against the Angels, they sort of attached mental illness to his case. It became, he had, was examined by a doctor and found that he was suffering from depression. And Miller tried to make the case, as I was hinting at a minute ago, that this was just the same as any other kind of injury that was keeping him from performing at a top level. And Johnson won the grievance, but because he was black and Tony Horton, who played for the Cleveland Indians at roughly the same time, who was undergoing his own travails with mental illness, was white, they definitely came down harder on Johnson, going back to the angry black man theme that's been sussed out by a variety of scholars. I mentioned Mike Messner earlier, he's written on that as well. So we never completely lost the inconvenience part or the inconvenience frame, I guess. So that's they do overlap and there are remnants of even the sensationalistic coverage. You see that pop up periodically, even in the latter stages. But overall, just as a field, journalists started developing more mechanisms to, again, make the reader comfortable with the discussion of mental illness. And the athlete who, at least for my money, kind of exemplifies that or embodies that is Lionel Aldridge, who was a star defensive end for the Packers in their glory years in the late 60s, but later fell on very hard financial times, even at one point having his Super Bowl ring stolen because of undiagnosed mental illness. And so he ended up homeless. He ended up landing in the office of a reporter in Milwaukee and telling his story. And then he disappeared again. And the reporter for the Journal Sentinel wrote this long sort of reminiscent of the earlier coverage piece on his plight but for our purposes that what ended up happening is that aldridge once things calmed down for him and he got treatment and reestablished himself got a job as a commentator became kind of the first really well known after pearsall i should say spokesperson pearsall comes with i guess a little bit of some baggage yeah it wasn't that he didn't reject the limelight. I mean, he obviously participated in the making of the movie and the book. And when he was alive, thought the movie was great. But later, you know, he, when he was still alive, obviously, he said that they got some stuff wrong. And it was a more performative sort of thing, whereas Aldridge became the first real, I'm going to go out on the road and speak about my experiences kind of person, the activist, the one who was going to start to raise awareness and get us into 
the theme is kind of the title of the subtitle of the book because he felt it important to start a dialogue such as it was in that period about mental illness and helping the mentally ill get treatment and, and others possible types of help for their lives. At the same time, there's a golfer named Bert Yancey who suffered from what now would be pretty easily diagnosed as bipolar disorder. He ended up actually going off on a, a long rant at an airport in Japan and attacking people. And eventually he was put on medication that caused tremors in his hands, which essentially ended his golfing career, much to the, the pain of a lot of his friends. But he also was speaking out. He would give talks and you know go around the country. He, he actually lamented late in his life that he didn't couldn't do more, sort of a la Aldridge, to raise awareness. And that you know even though Aldridge had retired by that point, he still had an impact. But for the purposes of the book, the key element is that now journalists had a way, a template, to explain to the public in a palatable fashion that still sort of matched information with not too much of a systemic look at why you know mentally ill suffer so much from institutions, not societal neglect and lack of programs. And so that template, what my wife actually coined, the Aldridge template, has sort of taken hold and still exists today in one form or another. And so, you know, there are a lot of factors that have changed the relationship. I mean, I think a big one is the fact that athletes of that scope, of that level, can really control their own narrative now. They don't necessarily need sports writers to be that voice or, you know, amplify what they're thinking or saying. And the more famous the athlete, a la Simone Biles, Serena Williams, the more control there's going to be. I mean, lots of management, careful management and public relations, you know, influence. And one of the curious parts of the journey was that if you violate the template, if you go outside the terms of the template of the of the frame of this set of tactics, your experience with mental illness still gets some of the marginalization or that treatment that came before, although not nearly as graphic and as sensationalized as perhaps was seen back you know, with Bergen and those players. But for example, Kyrie Irving, who has been, I think, properly criticized for his lack of awareness and comments about that movie with anti-Semitic themes, when he talked about his depression, the fact that he was more of a, a troublesome player for management definitely colored the coverage. It was almost like reaching back to the inconvenience stage. What a pain in the neck he was for the ownership and, and the coaches. And because he was outspoken on other issues, that caused sports writers to sort of reframe his mental illness as kind of just one more thing to deal with about Kyrie. And there was a, a lesser known athlete, Royce White, who was a top flight basketball player at Iowa State. He had a really bad fear of flying, among other things he was dealing with. And so when the Rockets drafted him, Daryl Morey, I guess, had not done all of his homework. But sports writers at the time allowed Daryl Morey to basically just go off on Royce White and say what a you know pain this was and how much trouble he was causing the team. And so what White tried to do was turn that into or just go out and become more of an activist. And so whereas someone who trod the approved path like Aldridge and then later Michael Phelps and Serena Williams and others with all of the parts that make that an easier task for the reporter, the public relations framing and that kind of stuff. If you're Royce White or Kyrie Irving and you are a player that has been deemed an iconoclast or uh, other less friendly terms, 
the experience of mental illness almost goes right back to less helpful, let's say, discussions. Your book shows an evolution over 100 years of sports journalism and how it's kind of changed. I mean, and clearly what you're saying right now, it's like, oh, everything's better now. I mean, that's not the case, that there's still, you know, needs to be a greater understanding of mental illness. I mean, this is not just sports journalism. This is all journalism. This is all of life in America. There needs to be a better understanding of mental illness and what it really means for the individual and the people who, who, who love him or her. So what advice would you give to a, a journalist right now about how they should approach writing a story about, you know, a sports figure or maybe somebody else who's, who's prominent in the community who may be experiencing mental illness? Well, I think, you know, one of the, the main criticisms, I guess, or concerns I had as this, all of this work, all of these articles were piling up and revealing things was that it became sort of a disconnected series of stories. I mean, an athlete comes along, shares their experience. We talk about it for a little while. And then we sort of recede and go back to our, you know, daily activities. So more consistent treatment of mental illness with a little bit more depth would be helpful. I think that, you know, talking more about systemic inadequacies would be a good thing, maybe laying off the episodic framing. One of my students actually likened it in a discussion we were having to the tendency to cover overcoming obstacles. The term is thrown around as perseverance porn you know, where you only focus on certain elements in a very dramatic way of someone's experience, figuring out how to humanize even further what's going on and maybe connect people rather than not marginalizing them, making this still seem like an odd experience. Because one in five Americans, if the statistics are right, are at some points in their lives or are currently dealing with mental illness. So it's not an uncommon experience, but by framing it that way, athlete by athlete by athlete, or approaching it that way, it's made to seem like, you know, sort of discrete experiences rather than an undercurrent of what a lot of people are dealing with. And so, you know, Howard Bryant, who's the phenomenal sports writer, columnist for ESPN, sort of calls on us to stop falling in love with what he calls the gesture, the outward performance of mental illness, it almost becomes a ritual as though we're, you know, every athlete comes along, we, you know, sort of marshal our intellectual forces, we experience it in a particular way. Hopefully, we gain empathy and learn a little bit. And then we just, it's back on the shelf in a way. And so waiting sort of the next, for the next ritual to happen, and it continues to happen. I mean, Simone Biles, I was writing the book came out, I guess, two or three weeks ago, but as, as late as January, I was adding, you know, athletes to the, but this is by no means exhaustive either. And doesn't even touch college athletes, collegiate athletes, or, or high school athletes. You know, that's maybe a different, another book or another paper, but it's essential to deal with it and write about it on a more consistent, thoughtful basis, rather than just waiting for the next athlete to show up and say, Hey, you know, I've been dealing with this or, waiting for the behavior of an athlete that's motivated or prompted by mental illness to be covered in that way. The, the one athlete that pops to mind on that last score is Evanson Griffin, who's a defensive end for the Vikings, who several years ago had a violent incident related to mental illness. He attacked people at a, at a hotel, I believe, got some treatment, things were better, and then recently had another episode. And so the team... Again, going back to that inconvenience center sort of frame or stage, 
kind of threw up their hands and say, you know what, he's getting treatment. He's he's a good guy. We're finished. We're done. And then it's like that ends. It's just, you know, again, waiting for the next person. And in his case, the fact that he didn't right away fall into that template we talked about a little while ago complicated his coverage unnecessarily. But anyway, the I mean, I think that we are really stuck as we are, I think, in the broader dialogue on so many social issues. Whenever you hear, I always kind of cringe, I guess, as a former reporter and just maybe, you know, pay attention. A human being. <laughs> yeah, I guess, or just a, an odd set of things I pay attention to. But whenever I hear any pundit or anybody, any journalist use the phrase, it's important to have a dialogue, I know we're stuck. That means we're not progressing. It means we're talking. And that's fine. That talking, at least so far, hasn't produced... There are definite positive outliers. There are lots of writers and journalists. Again, and this is maybe not a love letter to journalism, but this is more friendly advice to you know my former field that it's time to sort of get beyond the dialogue is important and actually produce something out of it. It's great to see leagues and teams hire psychologists and you know make more resources available and not completely dismiss the athletes when they like they did with Sawchuck and the others in the earlier decades. That is progress. By the same token, there's no indication or no research to show are those resources enough? Are they really helping the athletes? Are they are they able to actually share? Because for me, the it's kind of an odd thing to say as a Jersey kid, but I'm a Cleveland Cavaliers fan. And the starting point for all of this was Kevin Love in 2018, where he was getting just crap from his teammates about not being available because he was suffering from pretty severe depression. And so he decided to let Jackie McMullen of ESPN conduct an interview about it. He went public. And this is maybe the sub starting point of the most recent round of dialogue, but it was, you know, we have to start a dialogue. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, okay, that's a good thing. I don't want to diminish, you know, but it's the shape and the content of that dialogue that really matters. You know, the thing you said about narratives also got me thinking a lot about the idea of these aspirational things that they're going through this difficult process, but at the end, you know, here they are back on top here. They are, you know, ready to move on. And, you know, mental illness isn't like that mental illness. There aren't always happy conclusions. They're just, here's another day or whatever. You're right. It, it is a just putting one foot in front of the other, improving daily, but journalists. Then how do you cover that? Exactly. Yeah. You can't cover incrementalism, or at least we've been taught as a former journalist, current journalist, and you know others in the field that it has to be something that grabs the attention of the reader. And it helps when you know this, this approach has kind of been manufactured by athletes, you know, with more control of their own images and representation. And also the field itself is financially unsound in spots, as we know. And so it's a res- it becomes, as weird as it sounds to say, kind of a resources issue because you could go in and do a more thoughtful, nuanced piece. And there have been some, to be fair. Or, you know, you can just grab onto the template and say, OK, here's another athlete. They've overcome this and Americans love achievement. So they expect problems to be solved easily. You know, rugged individualism still is in there as well, but it would require a great deal of work. I mean, I would enjoy, I guess, at some point sharing some of this stuff with, you know, some of my old colleagues via your wonderful space and others. And so I hope that it might be 
fodder in an argument with an editor, maybe I'd even settle for that, you know, like, Hey, we should do this and this. And <laughs> yeah, I don't know about you. I've, I've had moments in my life in a newsroom or in a conversation with a fellow journalist where suddenly when I was in the field thinking about something or trying to decide how to cover something, I remember, remember that conversation and it informs me. And you know, I have not read your book. I'm going to order your book. I'm fascinated by this subject. I think wonderful. that's two books you've sold. Uh, <laughs> you and my mom. That's it. No, you and your mom. Okay. You made your mom pay. Okay. Well, no, I didn't. I, <laughs> I did not. She, she actually, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. It's, I think you have to, I mean, being aware of this issue and how you approach any story that you cover, because, you know, reminding yourself that what you choose to write and how you choose to write it has consequences for lots of different people. You're not just reporting the score to the game and, or why they lost because of one player. You're, you know, I'm not saying don't write about what happened or, or maybe something that turns out to be a negative thing, but at least try to put some perspective in it, I guess. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think, yeah, it is all about choices. I mean, for one, I'd really just settle for maybe a, a moratorium field-wide on the use of the word demons to describe mental illness. I mean, I just saw one, and, you know, as I said, the book is always like, and there's more, you know, but um, headline the other day about a young athlete who was fighting their demons, and it was just... It's lazy journalism. Is that yeah, it? it's been a while since I've been out in the field, but, and I don't know for sure that, you know, journalists still don't write their own headlines. And so there's that disconnect and gap that we're all used to, but it's just like, you want to be there to tap on the shoulder and say, uh, you know, <laughs> let's think of something else. And it's not a, again, this is not a rip. I love my time as a reporter and, you know, miss it every so often. I joke with one of my students who's now in his thirties and has been a, an award-winning investigative writer for the Inquirer here in Philadelphia. You know, if you ever need a 61-year-old to come off the bench, you know, put me in, coach. You're going to make that 30-foot jump shot. You're yeah, gonna that's win. Right. You're going to win. Ron, this is fascinating. I am going to buy this book. I encourage other people to purchase it as well. I think any opportunity we have to sort of look at our processes, learn from the history that's come before us, and then maybe think about how we can change something in, in the coming years and what our role is in portraying mental illness in the wider dialogue that's going on sorry i used the word dialogue oh no no that's uh, <laughs> but anyway thanks for coming on the podcast oh, i appreciate it thank you so much mike you've been listening to it's all journalism a weekly podcast about the people who report the news you can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com while you're visiting our website sign up for the it's all journalism newsletter to make sure you don't miss an episode of It's All Journalism, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, Amazon, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco is our audio producer. Amber Healy writes our web content. Amelia Brust is our booking manager. Steph Thomas manages our social media. Nick Dupre composed our theme music. Carolyn Belefsky designed our logo. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>